You're listening to a teaching from Vintage Church LA. This week, we're hearing from a special guest speaker. Good morning, church. Go ahead and grab a seat. We are going to take an offering this morning as we do every Sunday. If you're a guest, there's no obligation to give. Just pass that basket right along. If this is the way you give, as the basket comes around, feel free to put your offering in there. Let me pray over us, and then the baskets will come around. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your generosity towards us. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father. And Lord, we take what you have given us, and we give it back into your kingdom, and we sow it into the fertile soil, and ask that, God, you would do something wonderful with it. So Holy Spirit, would you take what we give and multiply it for your kingdom and for your cause? In your name we pray, amen. Amen. I'm going to take a drink of water, and those baskets are going to come around. Good morning. How are we doing? We good? Wonderful. My name is Johnny. If you don't know me, now you do. I'm on staff here at Vintage, and I'm preaching this morning from the book of Philippians. I have a question for you. Why do we cheer at the start of a race? Why do we celebrate at a wedding? Why do we congratulate parents at the birth of a newborn? Why do we celebrate the start of something? Because if I'm honest... I am not impressed with people who start things. I'm impressed with people who finish things. We don't want to see someone just start a race. We really want to see them finish a race. We don't want people to just have a wedding and start a marriage. We want to see a couple grow old together, still in love when their faces are wrinkled and worn. We don't want to just celebrate a birth. We long to see a life well lived. We cheer at the beginning, but what we really want is to cheer at the end. We cheer at the beginning because at the beginning we assume that the potential end will be realized. I'm happy at a wedding because my optimistic heart is hopeful that what I am seeing is the beginning of something that will end as healthy as it started, if not better. We crave good endings, but too often, we do not get them. We, we celebrate a lot of beginnings, as we should, but we don't celebrate nearly as many endings. When it comes to the journey, or journey of a follower of Jesus, the story is the same. Lots of people start the journey, but not many people finish it well. I've cheered at a lot of baptisms for people whom I love dearly, but sadly no longer would say they follow Jesus. Why? There are millions of reasons why someone might stop following Jesus, lots of them so legitimate, so painful, so hard, so wrapped in brokenness and complexity that it is too hard to unpack all of them from this stage. And for those people who have walked away, I have so much compassion and love and empathy, and I long for those people to one day come back home to Jesus. And so we pray for them with great hope. But what we must examine here is for those of us sitting in the seats today is how do I finish well? How do I last? How do I get to the end? How do we cross the finish line and look to our left and our right and see each other and say we have made it? 
There's a question that I want to look at today that is at the center of this problem. How do we think about salvation? In fact, what is salvation? How does one, quote unquote, get saved? We throw around these phrases in church, most of them innocent enough, trying to sum up a complicated idea. And so we say things like, you got saved, made a decision for Christ, gave my life to Jesus, converted to Christianity, became a Christian, answered the call, was born again. All of these phrases are fine, some of them even straight from the pages of scripture, but they've perhaps given us a limited or incomplete understanding of salvation as a moment in time, a singular event. And I think this view of salvation would be unfamiliar to Jesus and the Apostle Paul and the Christians of the early church. We often view salvation as a single, life-defining, cataclysmically significant moment when the work of God in your life arrives in full, transformation in a bottle. It's binary. You weren't saved, now you are saved. You were out, now you're in. You weren't a Christian, and now you are. And it is not how Paul writes about salvation in the New Testament. And Paul, of anyone, has the most dramatic and memorable conversion story, perhaps in the history of the church. He has the life-altering, stop you in your tracks, everything changes, get saved moment on the road to Damascus recorded in Acts 9. So radical is his quote-unquote conversion that he changes his name and his whole identity around it. But look how Paul writes about salvation. In his letter to the Philippians, in chapter 1, verse 3, we'll start there, he writes this. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Skipping ahead a few verses, says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's a lot in there, but right in the middle is this phrase where he says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. How does Paul view salvation? Not as a single moment, but as a lifetime of good work that has begun and is not yet completed. It has started, but it is not finished Another way of translating this phrase of Jesus carrying your salvation on to completion is to say that Christ will evermore put his finishing touches on our salvation. Our friend John Mark Comer in this very room said this, I took notes for it, wrote them down. He said, for Paul, there is no doubt that salvation is clearly not a one-time event in the past. You would not hear Paul ask a question like, when did you get saved? Or how many people got saved this Easter? 
For Paul, salvation was an ongoing process that begins at baptism and does not end until death. What does this mean for us? Simply put, we have made a mistake when we begin to view salvation as a single and isolated moment of decision rather than a transformational journey that we continue to walk down. Salvation in the mind of Paul and the early Christians was not just a moment but your whole life. You get saved and then you continue to be saved. Christ begins the work of salvation in you and is now in the process of completing that good work until the day when he calls you home. So how should we look at salvation? You are saved and you are being saved. You are a Christian and you are becoming a Christian. When we are baptized, it is the start of the race. It is the beginning of our salvation, and then we are called to spend the rest of our lives continuing on this journey and to finish it. Maybe you have a moment in your life when you gave your life to Jesus, got converted, were born again, made a decision for Christ. Amazing. I do not mean to discredit that moment. Hear me now. I mean to celebrate it. But I also want to reframe that moment as not the moment when the work was finished, but the moment when the work began. This is good news for us. For some of us, we have that moment, a before and after, a life-changing day, a radical prayer, outstanding. But for many of us, our salvation moment was undramatic, unmemorable, unremarkable. Maybe you're like me, You don't even remember ever getting saved. I was raised in a Christian family. As long as I have memories, I remember being, quote unquote, a Christian. I don't remember ever praying a sinner's prayer, if you've ever prayed one of those. So I had to actually pray one in my 20s just to make sure, like, am I I in? I was like 22, I was like youth pastor. I'm like, "Am am I even in? Some of us have a memory of a day we got saved and things got better for a while. Things change for a bit. We live differently for a moment, but slowly and gradually over time, through a thousand unnoticed and insignificant moments, our life returned to the static norm it had been before we found Jesus. For some of us, our salvation prayer and conversion moment was nothing more than a quick prayer to purchase a ticket to heaven. was never representative of inner transformation. For some of us, we were baptized as children, not a knock on that, by the way, and we don't even remember it ever being our choice, and we've wondered for a long time whether we ever made the decision to follow Jesus at all. Some of us were baptized as babies, then confirmed our faith in middle school, and then now as adults are realizing that our middle school selves were not much more self-aware than our baby selves and we weren't in a great position to make decisions with eternal ramifications. Maybe no 13-year-old is. So why is this good news for us? Firstly, the concept of salvation being an ongoing process is good news for each of us as it makes each and every day of our lives significant as each day is a day of ongoing salvation. Each day represents the opportunity for me to once again say to God, thank you for saving me, save me again. 
I don't have a dramatic or significant day of salvation, but what I have is a beautiful and unfolding story of salvation that is so much more grand because it weaves together a tapestry of 10,000 days, each one a testimony of God's grace and goodness. I don't have a testimony of a single day. I have the testimony of my whole life. Secondly, for each of us who call Jesus our savior, every single one of us fail daily to live lives that honor and glorify Jesus. We mess up constantly and fall short of the standard of righteousness and goodness that we are called to. This can leave us doubting, was my salvation even real? Has God actually forgiven me? I thought I was supposed to be a new person by now. If my salvation was supposed to be a single moment in time, then those doubts can feel very sharp and very cutting. This can lead to one of two things, either giving into those doubts and packing the whole Jesus thing in, or it can lead to a constant restarting. Got to get baptized again, got to respond to every altar call every Sunday morning because I know what I did at the club on Saturday night. Yikes. Been baptized 10 different times at 10 different churches, always needing to recommit because we wonder if it didn't stick the last time. But when my salvation is an unfolding journey of God's grace being new every morning as he confirms his salvation over my life by continuing to save me each and every day, then I can actually have confidence in God's power in my life because there is now grace for me to not be perfect yet. And so we have to hold this tension. I am saved and I am being saved. I am saved. I'm in. I'm adopted into the family of God. He has saved me. This is a firm foundation that each of us can stand on. I'm not trying to diminish and make you uncertain. Like, am I, am I even saved? Or any of us? Yes, you're saved. You're in. You're good. But he has also started a work in you. And now you must ask Jesus to complete the good work over the course of your lifetime until your death. And so you are saved and you are being saved. This paradox is seen in other areas of life too. In this country, in this age, when you turn 18, you are an adult. You are legally, definitively, technically, and totally an adult. But also, you know, I mean, you're becoming an adult. You have a lifetime of becoming an adult ahead of you. You are technically and legally not a child. You are an adult but you must learn to mature and change and grow and develop so that you no longer act like a child, but act like an adult. When people fail to mature, we even have names for it. Anybody ever met a man-child before? <laughs> it's not pleasant. And I'm not bashing 18-year-olds either because there's not a person in this room who has arrived at the status of complete adult. In fact, when you stop maturing and stop growing, childish behavior quickly shows its face again like weeds ready to sprout. In fact, it's a stereotype in society and a trope of the elderly person who everyone has to cater to their immaturities because great-grandma Betty ain't gonna change now. Not pleasant either. You can have the technical and legal status of an adult and still be on the journey of becoming an adult. 
Same for parenting. You have a baby and in one day, in one moment, boom, you're a parent. And you have a lifetime to become a parent. Salvation is the same. We have viewed salvation often in the Western evangelical church as a transactional event where you receive legal pardon for your sin. You go from guilty to innocent, which is not wrong, that's true, but it's just incomplete. Salvation is not just a legal pardon, but a life of deepening union with your creator. Not just a change of legal status, but a lifelong healing of the soul in the hands of your father, the great physician and lover of your soul. This topic is significant for me at the moment because a few weeks ago, I was talking with my kids before bed. I have three kids. Jensen is nine years old, Ezekiel is six, and Archer is three. Every night we do family talk. We sit on the bedroom floor, everybody goes around and shares their favorite part of the day, and then we pray together. And if you're picturing that being this beautiful time, you're picturing it wrong, it's chaos every time. No one listens, the boys make potty jokes the entire time. When it comes time to pray, everybody gets distracted, nobody wants to do it. So if you're picturing Johnny, the perfect pastor with his idyllic children, it's not the scene. But every now and then, they surprise me as children want to do. This one night a few weeks ago, Jensen, the oldest, the nine-year-old, was asking me about hell. What is hell like? She heard it was a fiery place you go forever. Not something I've ever taught her, but somehow an idea that she has. So I told her, of course, she needs to read the theology textbook Four Views on Hell by Stanley Gundry and Preston Sprinkle, because the main line, Western Evangelical Church has drastically oversimplified what the Bible does and doesn't say about what happens when you die. She took those notes well. <laughs> no, but seriously, I actually did explain the four views of hell to her. Um, but seriously, like a lot of us, my kid's faith at its beginning was motivated by a fear of something bad happening when they die and wanting some fire insurance, a ticket to heaven. So I explained a little bit, four views of hell, as simply as I could, and then spoke about Jesus saving us from our own bad choices his vision for a perfect and glorious world with no more pain and sadness, how Jesus makes a way for us to not only be part of that creation when we die, but he shows us how to start building that creation now in the midst of this one. And Jensen says she'd like to be a part of that. So what do I do? Even then, I'm like, oh, well, man, I think the theology is a lifetime of salvation. What do I? Well, we still need to pray a prayer. We still need a moment. So I say, let's pray a prayer, and you can repeat after me. And Ezekiel, my six-year-old, says he wants to pray this prayer too. And then my three-year-old Archer says, me too. And suddenly I'm like leading all my kids to the Lord at bedtime. My wife, not even in the room because she's hosting my parents who are in town. I forget to call her in. She's mad at me later when I walk out of the bedroom and go, so just save the kids just now. Like, just, I don't know, went, went, went away. What's happened? She, she couldn't believe it. I'm not a perfect guy. So I start with Jensen and Ezekiel, and we pray this prayer. I ask them to repeat after me. And I say, Jesus, I believe in you, and I love you. Thank you for saving me. Please show me how to live my life the way you want me to. I'd like to live my life with you forever. Amen. Come on. They repeat it after me. It's awesome. When we're praying, I notice they're like, 
this, they're staring at the sky. Um, ah, okay, theology lesson again. Okay, so God's not in the sky. He, he, he's, he's alive and living, and he's not just off somewhere else. He's here with us. He lives in your heart. And they immediately go, okay. <laughs> stare deep into their chest. I go, okay, this is, not, this is not right either. So I say, okay, let's do this. <clears throat> Close your eyes, put your hand on your heart, okay? And we'll pray like that. And so they all, hand on heart, eyes closed. And they start to pray. Jensen prays and Ezekiel prays and I get to Archer. And he's three and he's a wild card. <laughs> I'm 100% sure he has no idea what's happening. He is laid on the ground, hand on heart, eyes closed, just in his underwear. Like, <laughs> I totally am sure he's just doing what his brother and sister are doing. Sitting there, he's laid there like this. And so I ask him, I say, Archer, are you sure you want to do this? Maybe you want to wait until you're older and you can understand a little bit more about what you're doing. And he goes like this. He goes, Dad, I already have my hand on my heart. Let's go. <laughs> like, sure thing, bud. And so he prayed the prayer too. No change in his heart whatsoever since. I mean, no change whatsoever. So, but I have three kids now that have, they've had their moment. I don't even know if they're going to remember it, but they've had their moment. But it's not just a moment. That was the beginning. They've started the journey. They are saved. Hallelujah. But they are also being saved. My job discipling them and raising them in the faith is not over. In fact, it has barely begun. They have just started a marathon and I intend to see them finish it. I cannot let my children stay at a level where they think they just punched a ticket to heaven. They aren't just saved, but they are called to a life of being saved so that they can, they can continue to work out God's perfect plan for their lives. For many of us, salvation, following Jesus, started as a transactional event. We wanted to go to heaven instead of hell. We felt guilt about how we've lived our lives and we wanted forgiveness. Some of us, maybe we don't even remember when or how or why we started. And I don't think there's anything wrong with any of those starting points, but we must recognize that they are starting points and we must not stay there. Our salvation needs to move. Paul writes about this further in the letter in Philippians. Philippians 2, verse 12, he says this, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Each of us, no matter where we started, have a responsibility to work out our salvation. God works in us. Notice that language. We have to work out our salvation and God works in us. We partner with him that Christ's work in us will progress through our lives and be completed. The important distinction here is to work out our salvation, not work for our salvation. Let's not confuse this for works righteousness model. Christ has begun the work. He did the saving. He is perfecting that work in us. But like anything in life and with God, we are called to actively participate in what he is doing. Look how Paul writes about it in a letter to his protege, Timothy. In 1 Timothy 4, he instructs his young disciple, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, 
train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. Look at this language. Train yourself in godliness. Labor and strive. This is language we usually repel at. We want grace. But actually there is effort to be put forth by us. That is not a bad thing. But there is effort to be put forth by us to participate in our own salvation. Again, not to cause it, but to see it come forth and be fruitful. One theologian that I read put it like this. Your own salvation is to be understood not as an object yet to be reached, certainly not as a benefit to be merited, but as a possession to be explored and enjoyed ever more fully. The proper models are the instruction of a school teacher to a class to work out a problem. The problem, for example, in mathematics, is possessed but waits to be unraveled. Or it's the counsel to a newly married couple to work out your marriage. For marriage once possessed is possessed in full, but merits a lifetime of exploration, enjoyment, development, and discovery. You see, if salvation is viewed as a transactional moment in the past, then it is static. But if salvation is ongoing, then it is dynamic. It must move forward, it must progress, it must be explored, and in doing so, change us. To put it simply, we are called to grow and change and transform as we work out our salvation and God works in us. Change or forward movement is a necessity for the life of a Christian. To stand still is to stagnate, and stagnation is a desert to the soul and fertile ground for sin. Psalm chapter one has this beautiful little poem, this little song that that spells out this theology beautifully. Look at this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Look at the progression of the verbs here, to walk, to stand, and to sit. Paul writes about your faith and your life being like a race that you run. And here we see that the falling apart of someone's faith begins when they stop running and they start to walk. And then they stop walking and they decide to stand still. And then not only do they stand still, but they sit and their faith begins to fall away, but blessed is the one who continues to run. We don't stop in our journey, but we must enthusiastically embrace our own change. If you got into this relationship with God, hoping to stay the same, then I have bad news for you. There is no such thing as a relationship with God that doesn't involve you radically changing over time. St. Gregory of Nyssa has this wonderful quote that's a definition of sin, of sin is a refusal to keep growing. 
He goes on to state, St. Gregory of Nyssa, that this journey of growing might not even be complete without death, but might go on in the next life and be truly eternal. This is the quote, in heaven or the age to come, perfection will not be a fixed state like in Greek thought, but an endless growth or enlightenment spiraling ever higher into new realms of possibility in God. Come on. When salvation is viewed as a one-time event in the past, it is binary and therefore static. You go from being out to being in, from not saved to saved, and when you get saved, you have arrived, you are done. I have a graphic for it. This is how I think when it's viewed as a, a moment, you go from not saved, and then, next slide, saved. That's it. That's the journey. Go from out to in. Done, completed, I'm finished. I'm just going to chill on the beach until I die. It's over. All I have to do is pay for this transaction by giving my worship or attendance once a week at a boring event on Sunday mornings, transactional, lifeless, left with only a longing to escape to heaven one day when it will all be worth it. Every missed football game finally redeemed. When we view salvation like this and when this happens, most Christians will eventually realize this lacks any real value and they opt out. The journey began, but because it never grew or matured, or because it stalled, it was viewed as a binary in or out. It's when most people eventually choose out. When salvation is viewed as a transformational journey of growth over a lifetime, it becomes more like concentric circles of depth. Cue next slide. This is the picture. Now this is not, don't misread this diagram like the last service did, of you go from not being saved to being God. That is, that's not the progression, okay? You don't become your own God. No, no, no. The vision is this. I still go from not saved to saved, but the destination isn't static. It has infinite levels of depth to be mined, and at the center, it is not my own salvation that's the goal, but it is the perfect, loving Father, God himself, who is at the center, to whom we move closer and closer. Not only does this make our faith more dynamic and interesting and worthwhile, it also takes us out of the center and puts God in the middle. You see, God did not just save you so that you could be saved. He saved you for himself. He saved you to draw you close to him in relationship. The goal is not you and your salvation. The goal is that you get to be with your heavenly father. I wonder, though, if most followers of Christ still see salvation as binary and so only travel into the outermost edge of relationship with him not understanding that there is infinitely further to go, infinitely more change to be undertaken, and infinitely more love available. Someone came up to me after the last service and told me about the word intimacy, this idea of closeness, and that its Latin root is intimus, which means to move from the outermost edge to the innermost. It is a movement in. The goal of your salvation is an intimacy of you drawing in further and further to the heart of God. Look how Paul says it in the passage we've already read. He says, this is my prayer, 
that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Do you see the pattern of growth and increase? There's supposed to be a journey that leads to deeper insight and knowledge of the way of God and that our love for him will abound more and more. The journey is to go deeper into the heart of God and in doing so become more like him, being able to discern his will, what is good and right and healthy and fruitful and righteous, leading to a more loving version of you, a transforming self. When you draw closer to God, he reveals himself to you in more and more profound ways. And with increased revelations of him, our hearts begin to change and we become more like him. This is what St. Benedict called the conversion of your life, where your life actually begins to change and conform to one that resembles Christ. And although it sounds appealing, when you hear it said like this, to draw nearer to God and go on this journey, Many of us do not go on it because to go on that journey is to let God confront you. What we don't want to admit is that our flesh is opposed to the way of God. When we let Christ save us, he begins to heal us from the wicked desires, unhealthy behavior, and toxic patterns of living that we are all plagued with. This healing process is good for us, but it is uncomfortable for us. And it is much easier to see how other people need it than how we need it. It's even easier to see how our old self needed it, but not our present self. To let God heal you and love you is to let God change you. And to let God change you requires that you submit to his way and let go of your own worldly ways of thinking. It is to say to God, you win. I lay down all my ways of doing things and ask that you would have your way in me. And this is a humbling journey. It is why C.S. Lewis says, every story of conversion is the story of a blessed defeat. Salvation is the ongoing journey of the soul and restoring of the self through the person of Jesus, the great physician. One of the great metaphors for sin is that of a disease which has corrupted every part of the soul's nervous system. To be saved is to ask Jesus to heal what is sick in you. To heal what is sick in you over a lifetime of loving and tender microsurgeries of the false self so that over the course of your life, you become radically, radically different from who you were because you are radically transformed into the likeness of Christ. And again, you will hear me say this over and over if you hear me preach more than once, to become more like Christ is not that you become an itinerant Jewish preacher and rabbi. To become more like Christ because you are made in the image of God is to become more like your true self as you cast off the false self. You will become more like you as you become more like Jesus. This idea 
is what our current culture appeals to, but gets fatally wrong. The idea and the catchphrases of just do you and follow your heart is an appeal to the idea that I want to become a more complete and healthy version of me. Where the world gets it wrong is that the message is that the, is that the true you is found by pursuing the disordered desires of the flesh, selfishness, pleasure, carnal appetites, ego, and image, and giving in to the false self. When in actuality, the true you is found in Christ, and the journey to get to the to get to the true you is to allow him to heal and transform you over a lifetime of obedience and self-sacrifice, words that we do not like. This is what Ruth Haley Barton calls the transforming self. Note, not the transformed self, the transforming, in process, ongoing, and to be continued. And so we ask Jesus to save us and heal us daily. Not just once. We ask Jesus to come into our lives completely and finish the work he has started. And we say, Jesus, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to live. I don't know how to rule this earth you've given us. I need you to save me today and every day. I am hopelessly dependent on you to do a work in me and I am willing to do my part and press into you and go deeper and further into your heart. This isn't a transactional moment. It's a relationship with the perfect person of Jesus. To let the creator of your soul love you back to health with the most perfect love. To carefully and tenderly wash your wounds and clean your feet and brush the hair out of your eyes and love you back to the healthy and whole and complete you until the new you is unrecognizable from the sickly and poisoned person you once were. Anything less than this is not a salvation worth having. So today, there is an invitation to not just be saved, but to keep being saved. To pray, God, save me today. Draw me into your heart. Reveal yourself to me. Heal me and strip away the false self so that I may become like you, how I was always supposed to be. Will you guys stand with me? As we come to worship, there's a song we sang earlier today, and the first service didn't get this. This is a 11.30 exclusive. As we worship to this song, Hosanna, before this sermon, all I could think was this is a response to the sermon we're about to get. If you know the word Hosanna, it's a word that we say, and most of us don't know what it means. We just go, yep, that's a Christian word, we say it. Hosanna, if you don't know, has kind of a double meaning. Firstly, it is praise to the Most High. But secondly, Hosanna means come and save me now. Come and save me now. And when we sing Hosanna, we have this duality going on saying, God, I praise you and will you save me?
As we sang this song, I, the words of this bridge, heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unseen. Show me how to love like you have loved me. Break my heart for what breaks yours. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause as I walk from earth into eternity. Man, we sing our theology. So we're gonna sing a little bit of that song again. I wanna invite you to not just sing it, but to pray it. Let it be your prayer of Jesus. Thank you for saving me, save me again. Thank you that you are a savior, save me anew. Save me today and save me tomorrow and save me every day going forward and, and walk with me as I go on this journey of salvation, this journey that goes from earth into eternity. And so as we worship, we say, Holy Spirit, come. Come in this place and search us. And Lord, as we worship and as we pray and as we come before you, Holy Spirit, would you wash our wounds and heal us? Would you save us where we need saving? Would you save us from ourselves? And Jesus, would you strip away the false self and reveal the true me who you have loved since before time began? Let's worship. Thanks for joining us for another week. We'd love to connect with you at one of our gatherings or online at vintagechurchla.com.